Welcome to Deviate to Win, a podcast featuring business leaders who've won by going in a different direction from everybody else. With your host, Jason Ader. This podcast is meant to be used for informational purposes only and not investment advice. Hosts and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed. All opinions on Deviate to Win are the opinions of the host and guest and do not represent those of Spring Owl Asset Management. This is the Deviate to Win podcast based on the book Deviate to Win. I'm Jason Ader. We have a super exciting guest with us today. I'm so excited to have uh, Jeff Seibert, co-founder of Digits, to be part of this podcast. He's really one of the best entrepreneurs that I've seen. Uh, he's you know, really got a fascinating story and uh, so look forward to hearing his perspective. He really, in my view, is, is one of those out there that you know has taken some of the principles of our book in his own success. And he's gone one way when everyone else got, has gone the other way and, and has proven on multiple occasions that he can be successful. Jeff, thank you and, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. It's fantastic to be here. Really excited. Well, we're excited to have you too. You know, I I, I love to hear how how people started. Like, what was your first job? What, what was your first break uh, in in business? Oh man, well, going back. So I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, definitely not the hotbed of technology, uh, from many other cities. Uh, but yeah, my first job was actually working at a computer repair store in the late '90s fixing Macs. So I, I think I've replaced more hard drives in iMac G3s than anyone else I know. Uh, really fun to sort of break into computer, the computer world and start just meeting people and understanding how technology worked. That's amazing. And so, and so how did you get, how did you get your first break in business? You know, we, I write in my book, you know, that uh, I was sent to a meeting with hundreds of people and, and there was no, no, really before there were cell phones. And so I put an out of order sign on one of the payphones, and and so when the meeting was over, and I got to the payphone and called my boss, I was the first person to get him the information. And when I got back to the office, they asked me how, how did I do? How did I get the information so fast? And I said, well, there's you know, it's hundreds of people and three phones, and I put the out of order sign on the phone to get him the information. The next day, I had an office and a. Bloomberg Terminal, and hence began my uh, my career on Wall Street. I, I love that. Well, my my big breakthrough was learning how to code. I taught myself C when I was 13. And that sort of opened the door again in the mid-late 90s to just being able to make something and got very, very fortunate with timing. I was just purely into it for fun. I had been playing computer games and got bored of them and wanted to make my own game and started to figure out how to do that. Through that process, learn C, I vividly remember the day I wrote Hello World, sort of the, the quintessential first program. You read the tutorial, you make the computer print Hello World, and I changed it to print the text in orange. And literally the moment that text turned orange, I, this light bulb went off in my head and I was like, I can make this computer do anything I ever wanted. That was just like the start. From that moment, I've spent probably three to four hours a day, every day of my life coding. I, I love coding and just sort of kept building from there and trying to write more and more interesting, more and more useful software. And so Crashlytics, I think, was, was really the first big breakthrough in terms of timing. I had been working at a company called Box. Uh, they were doing file storage, sort of uh, corporate file storage, the, the enterprise equivalent of Dropbox. And we were building their sync tool 
uh, to allow you to sync files between machines and it was crashing like crazy. And that gave me the idea of what if we could detect why software crashed and we could determine automatically the line number of code that broke. So then you could just tell the software developer, hey, go fix this line and your program will work. And that was sort of the inspiration for Crashlytics. And this was now in 2011, mobile was taking off, mobile apps were everywhere. And 10% of all app store reviews mentioned the word crash. It was just a fundamental problem with these early mobile apps and ended up launching this with uh, my co-founder, Wayne, who I met in Boston. And we just got so lucky with timing. It, it went from zero to on 300 million phones worldwide in under a year. That's totally amazing. And yeah, I mean, it still happens today. I mean, you know, we're, we'll have a, be on an app and it crashes and send the code on, you know, and, and, and makes it better for the next person. So incredibly innovative. Yeah. And it's now, it's just amazing the prevalence. So today Crashlytics runs on 5 billion monthly active phones, which is effectively every smartphone on earth. Yeah. That's incredible. That is incredible. So tell me a little bit about like some of the key people. I mean, you know, if, if you know, every entrepreneur has been influenced by by people above them, and 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 who's 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 been your key influences in your career in, in the context of your success and your your disruptive mentality. Yeah, the the biggest has honestly been my co-founder Wayne, and he completely opened my eyes because. If you if I backtrack a little bit, I had started an earlier company. I had been, of course, writing software since I was 13. So I'd started a couple software companies, none of which had done all that well. But I moved to Boston and randomly met Wayne at a sort of tech startup dinner. We were just assigned, seated next to each other and started talking. As someone coming from the technical side, I had always been very skeptical about the sort of business co-founder. I never understood the value they were bringing. I, I definitely underappreciated it. I was very focused on, hey, let's make the product work and then try to get people to use it and pay for it. And Wayne completely opened my eyes to how naive that was and taught me that sort of uh, not only is marketing essential to the success of a business, but actually the perception becomes reality. Because if you look at the world, such a tiny percent of people will ever actually use any given product, right? Even so many people have heard of Photoshop. There's not all that many experts in the world who actually understand all of Photoshop's features, but it's your perception of Photoshop that is what gives it that power. And Wayne taught me that literally the day, the first couple of weeks I met him, and I had just prototyped sort of the early version of Crashlytics and what it could do. And Wayne looked at it and was like, one, this is not a side project. It's a startup. And I'm going to get everyone interested in it. And I was skeptical. I was like, okay, what does that really mean? Right. And sure enough, three weeks later, he comes back to me with a list of 30 mobile apps. He had talked with their lead developer, gotten their commitment to use a beta version and their feedback on the idea and everything. And these weren't random apps. This was like VP of mobile, the weather channel. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess we should work together. <laughs> and that was the start of it. It was just like a transformative moment. That's amazing. I mean, that's an amazing person to have influenced you, but what, what a great partner to have too. Exactly. And so now we've been working together for 10 years across four different companies. Spectacular. So, so you're also in a, in a unique position because you've worked for two of the biggest tech companies in the world. You've worked at Apple, you've worked mm -hmm. at Twitter. 
Talk a little bit about that. I mean, everybody wishes, you know, they worked at Apple or everybody wishes, well, maybe not Twitter recently, but everybody wishes, I think, they got to work at Apple and Twitter or Google, but you work for two of the best. So what? tell us, what did you take away from these roles that have helped you get to where you are today? Really good question. And they could not be more different. It had been my childhood dream to work there, as I think it is for, for many people. And I was so fortunate to, to land a role, to get an internship initially and show up there. And what really surprised me was that Apple is, of course, a traditional company. They've been around now since 1976. And there weren't, it wasn't this modern open floor plan techie office that I think many people picture. It was offices and tiny teams, very traditional, and of course, very secretive. And so when you show up and join, yes, it's this large company, but it felt tiny because you aren't allowed to talk to anyone else. And so I was on a team of eight that was building the email client mail, and we were allowed to talk about mail, but we weren't allowed to talk about anything else. And if you were working on a feature that was confidential, you had to do it in your office behind a closed door. And of course, every feature at Apple is confidential. And so it was actually a little bit uh, lonely and a little bit myopic in terms of what you could see and understand. And it, of course, the company does have incredible aspects. Like because of that, they are able to produce extremely high quality software, extremely intentionally designed, very top down, particularly in 2006 when Steve was still there. Um, but you do sort of see the downsides of the approach as well. And so I did what I thought I, I never would. Like my dream had been to just go and work for Apple, but I ended up leaving because I realized that I thought there could be even better ways to build software. I was really more excited about an intensely collaborative, iterative, uh, sort of open process in building. Apple, everybody wants to know what's happening on the inside of Apple in some way. I think even more so as, as there's leaks almost every week now about a potential new phone. So it must have been amazing, uh, you know, amazing to, 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 to see that, you know, and uh, have that be so formative in, in, in the early part of your career. Yeah. And, and one anecdote. So when I was there in 2006, of course, the iPhone had not been released, but it was under heavy development, yet nobody at Apple knew that. And so it was actually, it turned out, built in the building next to me. No one was aware, but every once in a while, someone you worked with would disappear and you would just be told they've been reassigned. And sure enough, they had been pulled onto the iPhone project. Yeah, the iPhone came out the, the year my uh, daughter was born. So it's pretty amazing, like how many more pictures we have <laughs> once that once that began. It's hard, hard to imagine life uh, without it. Uh, it's hard to imagine a weekend without it. No, so it's uh, we'll see what happens with the car, the, the car, and, and 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 the next you know generation of technology. Definitely. So how about Twitter? I mean, Twitter was certainly controversial. I mean, you know, you have the head of. Uh, the Taliban on Twitter with former President Trump, not uh, lots of debates as it relates to, you know, the dire direction of that company. What, what was it like to work there? It's, I assume you think it, maybe it's a bit of a different animal today than it was uh, when you were there. Very much so. So I joined Twitter in early 2013 after they had acquired Crashlytics and I was charged with leading Twitter's developer platform. And so all of their APIs and SDKs that allow other companies to build products on top of Twitter. Um, and it was honestly a great period at the company. It was immediately pre-IPO. 
there was a ton of excitement and belief that the company would keep scaling. Of course, in retrospect, we now know about some of the hardships they faced. And it really crystallized for me the importance of product leadership at companies and having a crisp vision and understanding of what your product offers to whom and how. And I think Twitter fell into a few traps at the time that they're now sort of finally getting out of where they wanted to be everything to everyone. And that's not a product. Um, they, they needed more clarity on what the thing should do and how they could go build that with the teams they had. Um, and there was just unfortunately at the time, a lot of internal drama and change in direction and uncertainty, which, which damaged them for a number of years. But I think now things are slowly turning around um, it, and it is a difficult position because, of course, everyone on earth has an opinion of what Twitter should do or shouldn't do or could be or can't be. Um, and so it is you're sort of in the in the center of a maelstrom, as it were. Right. Right. Interesting. Well, you know, you're you're an unbelievable presenter, you know, on entrepreneurship and technical talk, topics. I mean, seeing you've lectured at Harvard and MIT and Stanford and Tufts and you know, keynoted, you know, um, uh, Twitter flight and just, just, you know, you're kind of everywhere. And, and, um, I think, you know, sort of curious about, you know, the Stanford university, uh, entrepreneurial thought leaders, uh, seminar. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was another really transformative moment. So this was back in 2005, I got involved in Stanford's entrepreneurship lecture series and it had been at the time relatively small. Um, we would invite startup founders, investors, lawyers, anyone sort of in the tech ecosystem to come speak on campus. Um, and over three years of helping coordinate it, we were able to actually scale it to a relatively big uh, platform in concert with STVP, which is Stanford's Technology Ventures Program. And uh, our ETL, the Entrepreneurial Lecture Series, became one of the top business podcasts on iTunes. We ended up landing some incredible speakers, Marissa Mayer, uh, incredible founders, uh, very famous sort of venture capitalists. And that was such a special experience as a student because you would never normally have any interaction with those people. But through just uh, sort of helping coordinate this lecture series, it was on us as the students to reach out, to invite them to speak, and then to take them to dinner after the talk. And so as a current college student, we ended up having dinner with, I think over the course of my time there, something like 70 different founders, investors, et cetera, and just an incredible entry point into the tech ecosystem in Silicon Valley. So talk a little bit about, uh, talk about this business uh, in Creo that you sold to Box. Um, how did that acquisition come about? So Increo was the first company I started right out of college. Um, and in fact, we never fully intended to start the company. Uh, it was actually a, a computer science project I had been working on with my best friend from college. And we were doing our senior project class and the class was a competition to just sort of, you had to build something and see how it went. And we ended up building an idea sharing tool to allow people to type in ideas, give feedback on them, sort of in the, in the spirit of brainstorming and collaboration. And then we did some really early machine learning work in the form of natural language processing, because this was back in 2007, um, that allowed us to cluster the ideas and automatically identify similarities between different ideas people shared on the site. And much to our surprise, we ended up winning the class. 
And so then we were sort of stuck and we're like, oh, should we keep building this? What should we do? And so we reached out to uh, someone we'd actually met through this lecture series, an associate at DFJ named Ravi Balani, uh, to get feedback on it. And so we go over to DFJ on Sand Hill Road. I had, had zero experience with this entire scene, with fundraising, with anything, but we just wanted his advice. And so we showed him the, our senior, uh, senior project and got his uh, thoughts on like what we should do with it. And honestly, I don't think the meeting went all that well. He was being nice. He was sort of intrigued, um, but wasn't all that excited. And at the end of the meeting, he was like, you know what? Let me see who else is here. And so he goes and shows up two minutes later with Tim Draper, the founder of the firm. And Tim walks into the room and is like, okay, you have two minutes. What are you building? And so we sort of quickly show him the demo again. And then he's like, how much are you raising? And we're like, well, we, we weren't, but we made up a number on the spot and we said 500 grand. And literally Tim goes, I can do that and walks out. This is the first time we had ever met a VC in our lives in, a, in this situation. Um, and Ravi is sort of stunned and is like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll put a term sheet together. That was the start of Increo. We ended up uh, starting the company full-time a few weeks before graduation, hired a bunch of our friends as engineers, and built this document and idea collaboration tool. Um, but unfortunately now, and so we, we raised that 500K, ran for the first year. Unfortunately now, it is late 2008, early 2009. And not only had the housing bubble popped, but Sequoia had put out a presentation called RIP Good Times. And that basically changed the fundraising dynamic in Silicon Valley overnight, and no one was willing to give us money. And so we ended up pitching 36 different firms to try to raise a Series A round, all of which said no. And we got desperate. We had a month of cash left. We had a team of seven. We didn't want to have to fire all of our friends and put like all of a sudden we'd all be unemployed. And so we started getting creative and we were like, okay, well, the VCs clearly don't value what we've built. Who could? And we made a list of companies in the Valley that were also doing document collaboration and might have a use for our preview and display technology. We, ended up, we had ended up building a ton of backend functionality to render files in a web browser uh, to basically convert them to Flash. And so we went down this list and reached out to all these companies and Box was one of them. Uh, Box was 40 people at the time. We met with Aaron Levy and it actually, we got extremely lucky. He liked the tech and Box ended up acquiring Encreo as their first acquisition ever. It was just incredibly fortunate. And now Increo Tech actually powered document preview on Box for five years. That's wow. And that was basically just a call. I mean, it was a cold call. You did, you, it was no relationship. You just called up and said, hey, we're, this is what we're doing. We had never met them before, knew nothing about them, and just ended up pitching them and showing them what we had built. And unlike all the 36 different VC firms, they saw the value in it. Incredible. Incredible. Let, let, let's move on you know, to, to Crashlytics. I mean, you know, the, the acquisition by Twitter and now Google, you gave us some numbers at the start, you know, on, on, on over 5 billion phones. I mean, did you, did you ever imagine that it, it would become this big? Never. I mean, I, and this has been a theme. I built these things for myself. Like I originally built Crashlytics because our own uh, box product was crashing. One of my side projects was crashing. And the real sort of light bulb moment 
was in early 2011, I ended up chatting with Mike Krieger, who had founded Instagram. And in 2011, Instagram was tiny. They were not super well known. This was early in the year. And they, and I asked him like, hey, uh, Instagram must crash. What do you do about it? And he said, oh, you have no idea. It crashes more times per minute than I can possibly read about, right? Like he was just getting uh, pinged by all these reports. And that was the light bulb. It was like, okay, clearly this has to be automated. And maybe this is a real business. But we just got extremely lucky with the timing and explosion of mobile. And the fact that every app developer had the exact same issue is their apps were crashing on random phones and random localizations all around the world. And there was no solution. And so it was just, it was lightning in a bottle. It was so fortunate to have a solution at that moment for the space. Amazing. Amazing. So now tell me a little bit about digits. Yeah. So digits is born from these earlier journeys and the exact same theme, solving a problem that uh, we have experienced personally. And that is with finances and accounting for small businesses. And the core of our frustration has been that when you start a company today, you have no choice. You're going to go hire a bookkeeper or accountant because you do have to file taxes. But from that moment, they now become your only interaction with your books, right? If you have a question, you have no choice but to email them. And their answer is always the same. It's, oh, let me take a few days to update your books and I'll get back to you. And it's not their fault. They're busy. They have 20 other clients. They're only able to work for you a day and a half a month. But the result of for you and your business is you're always behind. The average close is now about 15 days to 21 days. And this is what we're setting out to solve with digits is we're trying to build modern finance software, both for the business owner and for these external accountants to save them time and facilitate a more real-time collaboration and allow them to empower the founders they work with, the business owners they work with to actually sort of run their business in the moment and make informed decisions based on their finances. Amazing. I mean, you know, when you think about companies or segments, you know, of the economy, um, who, who do you think, you know, is, is, is really going to gravitate towards this? Yeah. And we've been fortunate with timing, sadly enough. Of course, this pandemic has resulted in so much hardship for so many small businesses around the world. And we're now seeing the beginnings of a rebirth of that. The, the rate of new business formation is way up this year, which is fantastic. And I really think this is a huge opportunity because all of these entrepreneurs starting new companies are now able to do so with modern software. And so this isn't vertical specific. We have restaurants using digits. We have tech startups. We have services businesses. We have e-commerce companies. We actually have a surgeon in San Diego who uses it to help manage his practice. And so it's very broad in who it can help, but it's just a lot of the core concepts. It's Help me understand my cash flow. What is my runway or how much, like how many months of cash do I have left? How are my expenses trending? What is my revenue looking like? These are very shared concepts across the space that just a more intuitive understanding of can be a huge advantage to the business owner. For sure. For sure. And, and, and in the context of, you know, our theme, the, the, the theme of, of deviating to win, what are, what are some of the what are some of the things the company's doing to really innovate and, and differentiate from its its competitors out there? Yes. So the big thing 
uh, that really shocks people is, and you can see this on our website, digits.com, is we have a highly designed product. Um, you are used to uh, business software being unfortunately ugly, very clunky, very difficult to use. And to us, that doesn't make sense. Why in your personal life do you get to enjoy really well-designed products? And yet the moment you show up to work, you're back in the dark ages of technology. And so what we're doing with Digits is we're pairing consumer grade, almost Apple-esque design inspired by my time at Apple uh, with really cutting edge machine learning. We have built an incredibly unique engineering team where we're able to do all of this live in production constantly. And so what that allows us to do is build this living model of our clients' companies so that Digits really understands their business and can make intelligent projections so that they're not doing the tedious work. We do all of that for them. And then we automatically analyze it all and tell you why your expenses are up or what happened to your marketing budget or why your revenue is down because so-and-so canceled or churned. And that the combination of design and technology allows us to deliver a product that's intuitive regardless of any background in finance. So you don't need to be an accountant and you don't need to have gone to business school to use digits. It just makes it visual and understandable for you. Amazing. Well, be really interesting to watch over the next couple of years, but it just seems like, you know, the, the way people are working now and the way businesses are decentralized sort of plays into exactly what, what you're doing and, this, and the solution that your, your business is, is solving, solving a big problem. Exactly. The, the potential to make finance more collaborative now that everything's remote anyway is critical. You can't just all get in a conference room and look at an Excel sheet. Like, yeah, you might be able to do that on Google Docs, but that's not enjoyable. That's not what you want. Yeah. I'll have to put it in front of uh, some small companies we know and, and, and let them work on it as well. You know, it's, it seems, seems like it'd be great you know, for a lot of businesses that, that we touch in our normal course of business as well. Would love that. That'd be great. So what what are some what about some of the other fintech companies that that you see out in the marketplace? Uh, anybody doing anything particularly interesting, different, not not following the crowd, if you will, but but you know, sort of rising uh, rising above by uh, being different. Yeah, I mean, one I would call out is Notarize, um, and and sort of on the on the borders of fintech because it's not the actual finances, but it's all the contracts you need to make stuff happen. The whole notary space is archaic and has been super manual for so many years. And Notarize is just killing it right now. For those who haven't heard of it, it's notarize.com and it's an online notary. So you have an app, you upload your document and they notarize it right there. It takes five minutes. And I've both used it. My co-founder and I were also early angel investors in it. But what I give them credit for is most people don't start a company realizing that to be successful, they're going to have to change policy in 50 states. And Pat Kinzel, the founder, has been at this for years now and has actually done it. And so they started with Virginia and Virginia was the first to legalize online digital notaries. And now he's gone and taken that and literally lobbied these state legislatures to enable this all across the country. And he's not finished yet. It's not in 50 states yet, but I think it's in 30 or 35 or something. And it's getting there. And just the credit I give him on taking such an archaic space and wrapping it in a beautiful, simple app experience is crazy because you don't appreciate all the work that went on behind the scenes to do that. 
Yeah, we've used it a couple times and it's, it, you think about like having to have somebody come over and like, look at your driver's license and yep. like watch you sign. I mean, it's just insane in 2021. So it, it works really well. It works in multiple states. And, and your story here is reminding me of Jack Pocket, which is in, on the, you know, our, our, our core expertise is in gaming and Jack Pocket mm. is doing, uh, you know, his Postmates for lottery. So you want to buy a lottery ticket, you buy it on an app and then it gets delivered to your house. But nice. that also required delivery rules and lottery rules and gaming rules changed in all 50 states or all, you know, or every state that has a lottery. Yep. And, and um, they're doing it state by state and, and absolutely killing it. I mean, they've just done, you know, around and it's just incredibly oversubscribed and they have it's such a incredible lead versus the peers so uh i'll have to we'll have to look into that well i'll look, I'll look forward to continue to, i would never have anything notarized other than that way going forward yeah so so let, let's shift gears a little bit um you got involved in in a, in a great show netflix's uh social dilemma I mean, it's mm -hmm. incredible scary but incredibly incredible documentary tell me tell me a little bit about the dinner you attended in san francisco that was organized by uh tristan harris google's uh former design uh chief yes design ethicist yes it was eye-opening and so at the time this was back in 2015 uh, i was twitter's head of consumer product and so after acquisition i spent two years on the developer platform side and then in 2015 was named head of consumer and ended up leading the product side for the core Twitter app and web experience. And at this time, obviously there was a lot of jokes and commentary around about how social media might be addictive, but no one was really taking it seriously. And Tristan, who I had uh, known from a few years back, um, organized this dinner in San Francisco with myself, a couple of folks from Facebook and other sort of, uh, people really on the cutting edge of thinking about social media and how, what the impacts were and opened my eyes to how actual mechanics in the product weren't acting in people's best interest. And what it really came down to was the business model. And so all of these social media companies make money from ads, but the challenge with that is, well, you need to show more ads and you need people to click on those ads in order to get paid. And so if you look at those motivations, these social networks need you to spend more time in the product so that you can see more ads and they need to show you more relevant ads so that you click on them. To do that, they need your data. And so they are highly motivated to capture as much of your time as possible and as much of your data as possible. And the net result of that is they're actually motivated to use these psychological warfare tricks to cause you to become addicted to basically show you things that bring you back, like so-and-so tagged you in a photo, right? Well, why don't you just show me the photo in the email? That would be very easy. But of course they don't, they force you to come back to the product to see the photo. And then once you're there, they show you more photos and other notifications, and there's something about someone you care about, and now you're hooked. And so it's all of these mechanics that we really wanted to expose to the world so people understood what was happening and could make more informed decisions about their usage. It really was an eye-opening documentary, and uh, there's a lot of with with you know five kids, you know that I've gotten to know really well, um, <laughs> especially during a pandemic. Wow, I mean it's 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 incredible how addictive uh, you know these these apps are, and these and it, I don't I don't see how it gets better. You, I mean, 
you see what the Chinese government is doing in terms of you know video games for kids. I mean, I'm not right. sure that's the right solution either. Right. Um, but uh, I did find it very interesting that many of the people uh, in that documentary don't allow their kids to use social media. Yes, and that was important to share is that is pretty much uh, accepted in Silicon Valley. Nobody allows their children to access devices or social media. Um, and that, that's obviously not the case in the rest of the world. And so we wanted to expose the dichotomy of the people who best understood this were also taking the hardest line against it. Right. Well, look, it's 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 a bit heartbreaking as a parent when your teenager is having a great time and in a great place and takes a picture and feels bad because their picture doesn't have as many likes as their friends who you know, right. just happens to get more likes on that day and they feel lesser about their experience as a result that doesn't make it's is not good for our children it's not good for our society a hundred percent and on the topic of of deviating so the producer director jeff orlowski he actually started the project as a climate change film because his previous work chasing ice and chasing carl were these amazing powerful climate change documentaries but what he realized was climate change was actually being blocked by misinformation and awareness and the social networks have, of course, a dramatic impact on that. And so he got interested in the topic through unblocking climate change regulation, which then caused him to discover all these mechanics that were happening that were spreading misinformation and causing addiction and preventing climate change work. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm watching now, uh, you know, the documentary J.J. Uh, Abrams, and uh, mm. it's on Showtime on UFOs. It took all the all all the recent uh, information the government made available on UFOs. So I'm on uh, episode four of four, but uh, yeah, I recommend that one too. It's a head spinner to some extent. Awesome. So, so give me some more thoughts and and ideas uh, that you have uh, around fintech. Um, you know, it's been a very interesting two years for Coinbase, for crypto, for blockchain and NFTs? How, how do you see the world, you know, and, and, you know, beyond what you're doing? Yeah, it's a really great question. And the there's obviously a lot of energy and hype in the crypto, excuse me, in blockchain space. And it's hard to understand which aspects are a pure bubble and which aspects there will be real utility generated from. I think NFTs in particular, the current uh, hype around these art and JPEGs and graphics is an interesting proof of, uh, proof of uh, value. But what really interests me is how those come into the business world. And so can it be used for gaming, for ticketing, uh, for different ways to make things far more easier and egalitarian? Uh, gets me very excited. And then on the pure sort of fintech finance side, we've obviously seen these explosion of companies over the past few years. And I really think at some point there'll be a consolidation because I don't want to use 10 different credit cards and three different neobanks and all of these different reporting or planning or budgeting or forecasting tools. And so it'll be really interesting to see the space start to consolidate. And I think there's an opportunity sort of if you look at the history of, of fintech back in the 80s, early 90s, there were these massive ERP platforms that were extremely expensive, extremely clunky, terrible to use, but at least everything was in one place. And I think there's an opportunity to have sort of a modern ERP come into form over the next decade, 
where it's very open, API-driven, easy to use, but it does bring all the data together so that you aren't left logging into 10 different platforms. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all very fragmented now and they're, you know, it has to consolidate. And uh, I went to uh, an art fair over the weekend and mm. there was an expert on NFTs, sort of interested. So I sat in and listened to her speak and it became very clear, like within the first few minutes of her explaining to this audience what NFTs were, that she couldn't really explain it. Like she's trying, she's trying to say, tell people what it is and how it's not digital art, but, and, and, you know, there, therein lies, you know, some of the challenges, but it's amazing to see yes. some of the pri prices, uh, uh, <laughs> Steph Curry even just bought, you know, $180,000 NFT. So, um, right. I love, I love capital markets. I love all markets, uh, booms and busts and uh, NFTs really, you know, going in a incredible parabolic direction right now. For sure. Yeah. And it'll be fascinating to see that play out. Yeah, that's that's for sure. How about some thoughts on the business climate? I mean, it's getting it's, it's been very hard to hire people. Labor rates are, are high. We're seeing inflation everywhere, you know, around kind of the, the, the economy. Um, we've got the pandemic. Um, just what, what are your thoughts around the, the current business environment as we're sort of you know, looking into 2022? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people realizing their value, which is fantastic. I think the pandemic, uh, for better or worse, has completely leveled the playing field is now for many roles, you can work wherever you want to in the, in the country. And so the, the kind of labor competition you used to see in New York, in Silicon Valley, in a couple places has now just gone everywhere. And from direct experience at Digits, I mean, we've actually been fully remote since 2018. So we re, re uh, sorry, we uh, predated the pandemic completely, have been fully remote for three years and wouldn't build it any other way. I think it's fantastic because it allows us to attract talent wherever they are. But now as, as a result, almost every company can. And so that's where you're seeing the competition for truly great talent. And I think companies will have to start differentiating on more than just pay. They'll have to create really positive environments, highly collaborative approaches to working remotely. And I think they'll have to deal with this uh, sort of trap of hybrid work, which a lot of the large companies are struggling with right now, is do you require your employees to come back? Do you let them move? Do you go fully remote? There's no clear answer, and it'll vary based on the type of company you are. But I think that's going to cause drama for the next couple years because what in my previous experience, having remote offices, having half your team in person, half on camera is a really bad experience. It, it sort of inevitably results in some people feeling like second class citizens, which is really damaging for a productive collaborative culture. And so I think a lot of companies will be struggling with that over the next two years or so. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's that's a the, the conversation in every boardroom and every HR office. How this is all going to work uh, going forward, and obviously in government too. In yeah, mandate mandates uh, for vaccines, except for the postal workers. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to play out. It's it's very tricky. Totally. How about any? How about any recent uh, book recommendations? What was your summer reading? Anything? Anything good? Uh, so a good one, and this might be a little obscure, but is uh, called Creative Selection by Ken Cosienda. And it is about product development at Apple under Steve Jobs back in the early 2000s. 
and it is remarkably accurate. So it, it covers the time period I was there and basically everything he says in the book rings true. And it really shows how Apple in that time sort of willed products into existence. It wasn't this linear A to Z process of like, we're setting out to do X, okay, we did it. It was just a, a bunch of really intelligent people trying things and iterating to see what worked. And so if any of your listeners are looking for more detail on like how Apple actually worked under Steve Jobs, I think that's a really great insight. I'm going to add that to my list. That sounds amazing. Jeff, thank you for your time. This has been a great show. One of my favorite. Jeff Seibert, co-founder of Digits. Well, Jason, really appreciate it. And yeah, this has been uh, an awesome experience and super excited. So thank you. Great. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the conversation, leave a review and subscribe to Deviate to Win to be alerted to future episodes. Jason's book, Deviate to Win, Insights from a Turnaround Investor, can be found on Amazon.